0: kid licks the you know the paint on the toy yeah you know you're selling toys selling toys to kids someone licks the paint and you know you got a big problem if you know little joey dies Buying and selling businesses just got a lot easier. Welcome to the Web Equity Show, where thousands of successful entrepreneurs go to learn about buying, growing, and selling online businesses. Your hosts Justin Cook and Ace Chapman share their real life advice, examples, and expert interviews to help you build and grow your own online portfolio. Now to your hosts,
1: Justin and Ace.
2: Welcome to episode 14 of the Web Equity Show. I'm your host, Justin Cook. I'm here with my co-host, Ace Chapman. What's going on, buddy?
1: What is up, sir? It's great to be here doing another episode, man.
2: Yeah, man. Episode 14. We keep knocking them out, man. I'm pretty proud of us. A little pat on the back for keeping the show going. Hey, uh, we are talking CPA's take on buying and selling online businesses you know, it's nice enough for us to give advice on taxes since we're not accountants. We figured we might as well get someone on here that does know the business. And, and one of the things that's interesting with taxes, with accounting, when it comes to buying and selling websites is that, you know, there's plenty of win-win in the industry, but when it comes to taxes, when it comes to tax considerations, it's a lot less win-win. I mean, there is an advantage on the buy side or there is an advantage on the sell side. And so we're talking to someone today that's going to get into that a bit more.
1: Yeah, it's one of these things I find myself constantly, constantly saying, Well, you know, I'm not an accountant, but, you know, here's my opinion, which you have to take and go to an accountant and see what they think about. But I'm sure you get it as much as I do, Justin. You just, questions after questions about tax issues and how people should handle the taxes when they're buying a deal or selling a deal and how to structure the deal so that they face the limited liability when it comes to their tax time. So I thought it was a great idea to get this episode going. We got another one coming up with an attorney, and the, which is also one of those things that both of us end up saying, like, I am not an attorney. So this will be a good episode for folks with those kind of questions.
2: Yeah, I thought it'd be great to get some real professionals from their various industries on here and i got to say i'm going to put this out there man the cpas and the attorneys these guys are deal killers man they're deal killers but that is their role i mean that is you know what they're supposed to do and so they can't advise you on you know, deals that aren't great for you or deals that, you know, at least don't look great from an accounting or a legal perspective. And I got to say, man, taxes, not really the most fun topic. You know, so if you're thinking about tune out or skipping this one, I got to tell you, it's not that bad. So the guy we had on Mario's kind of a funny dude for an accountant. So I think you're going to enjoy it. I think you'll find it entertaining, even if the topic is a little out there.
1: Yeah. He makes the topic of accounting as entertaining as it could be. So you got to know this stuff at the end of the day. And it's a huge leverage when you go into a deal. And really, you know, as much as possible, you know, how legal needs to be handled, you know, how accounting needs to be handled. And so when we're looking at a deal, you can go to a potential seller and say, hey, Talk to your accountant about this, but you may want to structure this deal in this way. So it's not the most fun topic, but I think he does an amazing job at keeping it entertaining.
2: Yeah, man. I brought him on. We're discussing a couple of things. We're discussing business structures. We're going to talk about buy and sell considerations on both sides. We're going to talk about the tax implications that come with buying and selling websites and online businesses. He does a great job of getting into that. Before we do that, buddy, we got some listener love, man. We got a five-star iTunes review from Lim Bear. says, awesome. Finally, this show is awesome. Justin and Ace deliver practical boots on the ground. Here's what really works advice. It's great to learn from practitioners. This show helps me balance my New York City big law corporate M&A lawyer background with real-life deals from the online biz M&A world. While I still might paper deals a little more than other lawyers in the deal, hey, sometimes I want an officer's cert. Now I know what to focus on and what to let go of. Thanks Justin and Anais. keep on kicking butt. Well thanks Limber, really appreciate it.
1: Yeah, I'll be excited to hear what he thinks about our attorney episode as well. But it is really interesting. I mean, you know, we've got several MA attorneys who are fans of the show, you know, the guy who's coming up is as well. So it's great to get feedback from them and I talk to people all the time that are Curious about private equity, it's amazing how different this world is from the actual private equity world. It's its own animal and has its own set of rules. And so you got to come at things from a little bit of a different perspective.
2: Yeah, it's a heavily cash flow in this business where private equity is like, ah, uh, you know, are we going to absolutely crush it, be a billion dollar company or not? You know, that's kind of the, it's really interesting. We got a question buddy from a new business buyer named Sean Smith. Let me go ahead and play that and then we can respond.
0: Hi, Justin and Ace. My name is Sean Smith and I'm in Chicago. First, I want to thank you guys for creating this podcast and creating awesome content that people can learn from you guys about how to acquire businesses. I'm in the midst of potentially acquiring a business with my partner. It would be our first business, so it's really exciting. And we are just kind of like trying to figure things out. The question I have for you guys is, what should our first offer be? Because the owner has the asking price, but we're wondering what our offer should be. All right. Well, thanks so much for listening. And I hope to hear from you guys soon. Bye.
2: Alright, Sean. Well, first off, thanks so much for calling in, man. Appreciate it. And I also want to congratulate you on your first deal, man. Sounds like it's going well and you're getting close to actually making the deal happen. One thing I'll say before we even talk about you know making the offer is that if there's a third party, let's say a broker or an attorney or something on the other side, and they're getting paid on you know the deal closing, you can actually play a trick on them and turn them at least into advocates for your case. And the way to do that is to Show them and tell them that you have the cash, that you're ready to move, and that you can move very quickly on the deal. So, you know, generally that third party is working on the sell side. They're working on behalf of the seller. But You can actually put them on your team if you show them that you're a winner, that you're going to get this deal closed and you can close it really quickly. They're going to advocate much harder and stronger on your behalf because ultimately they want to get the deal done. If the deal gets done, they get paid and if you seem like the best or most likely candidate to get that deal done, they may want to work with you even if you're offer
1: The other thing to take into consideration when you're dealing with a broker is for their seller, you know, like Justin said, their job is to protect the seller and try to get a deal done. And they only have a fiduciary responsibility to the seller. So if you seem like somebody who's going to cause a bunch of headaches during the process, then they're not going to want to deal with you. So just showing them that, hey, I have the money. I'm a real guy. I'm really going to close this deal. That can allow you to make a little bit lower of an offer. When I'm coming in and making an offer, the first thing I'm deciding is how much do I want this deal? And it's not just a matter of, oh, is this a, do I think it's a great deal or not? It's really what am I gonna be able to do with it? So, do I have another deal in my portfolio that it can basically, they can promote each other and both grow? Or do I see some hidden asset in this business where, you know, I'm buying it at two times earnings, but I'm gonna be able to double revenue very confidently within the next two months and basically turn that into a one multiple deal, then that's going to affect how I'm making my offer. So mistake that you don't want to make is making an aggressive offer when there's a lot of low-hanging fruit in the deal. And I see this happen all the time where people just, they get excited, they want to get an amazing deal and they have all this potential and then they end up missing out on the opportunity. So if it's just a standard deal, you feel like, hey, I want to own it, I'm going to get this return. I'm not going to really be able to do anything special to it. Then that means it's probably not high up in the priority list. You can go out and do that with any deal. But if you feel like you have a big impact, you want to get closer, a little bit closer to the sales price.
2: So I like what you're saying, Ace. You know, and I think it makes a lot of sense that there's some strategic opportunity, and you can dig, look around for strategic opportunity, or even like parallel industry, not even a direct strategic. But let's say that you don't have any deals, like you don't have any other deals or other companies that makes it a strategic purchase for you. One of the things I like to do is mitigate against risk. So you know, look for the weak spots in the business, and if that requires an earnout, make it an earnout. If it requires the seller to stay on for some period of time to recapture their Cash. Try to set it up or structure it in such a way that that happens. If it looks like a really straightforward deal, and you know the seller really needs the money for something, if you can find out why they're selling it and they need the money for, I don't know, whatever reason, and they need it quickly, you know, make a quick offer, make it all cash offer, and make it for you know twenty percent less, thirty percent less, depending on how much cash they need. So you know, try to structure it around both defending against you know risks in the business and then also trying to meet the needs of the seller if you can find out what those are. All right, Ace, enough about that, buddy. Let's talk to CPA Mario and see what he has to say about buying and selling businesses. So I'm really excited to have Mario on the Web Equity Show. We've been working with Mario as RCPA, helping us get you know a bunch of our businesses kind of taken care of. We've been working on structure, and he's been working with our lawyer on this. And I thought it'd be a great guy to have on the show to talk taxes, talk you know when buying a site, like what are you looking at? When selling a site, what are you looking at to protect your assets and protect (laughs) not pay the tax man all of your money? So Mario, it's it's great to have you on, buddy.
0: Justin, nice to chat. (laughs) And plus, you're one of
2: the most uh, (laughs) interesting and fun accountants. Like, usually, you know, you listen to those shows, you're like, oh my God, I don't know about this guy, but uh, you, I think we're going to have some fun here. Uh, Let's talk some business structure and setup, buddy. When setting up your business, like, you know, a lot of entrepreneurs are like, oh my God, I need to go offshore, or, you know, I need to go set up my financial domicile over here and my corporate structure over there. And they haven't even started doing business. So we generally recommend you know, do some business first, right? Get some money rolling in, get some cash rolling in, and then you can go back and fix that. Am I crazy? Does that freak you out? Or are you like, you need to be set up for the beginning? Or does that make sense to you?
0: I mean, going offshore right off the bat just seems crazy to me. The filing requirements cost a ton of money. And from the U.S. side, if you're a U.S. person, you're pretty much getting a little bit of deferral of taxes. So is deferral good? Sure. But, you know, you might want to wait till you're netting maybe a million bucks a year until you do something crazy like that. But, you know, a simple setup, sure. You know, set up an LLC, legally protect yourself, you know, separate yourself from the business. You know, why not? You know, that's can cost you a couple hundred dollars. You know, that's cheap. Might as well do that.
2: Yeah, so get something basic set up. Get it in the U.S. and maybe some liability protection. But don't spend all your time as an entrepreneur getting started worrying about all these crazy structures because you know, like you're saying, you know, you get to defer your taxes, but you still got to pay your taxes. Like deferral isn't non-payment. Right. It's simply, you get to hold onto that cash a bit longer and hopefully you can make the money with that cash that you have. You can make some more money in the meantime, but that makes sense right. for for Apple or Google or something.
0: But yeah, young and, entrepreneur. And the time and effort involved, you know, why don't you just make some more sales? Yeah. I think that makes a lot of sense. Just makes more sense. I mean, everybody wants to pay as little tax as possible, but you know, if you're Changing your entire lifestyle to fit taxes, that's generally not recommended.
2: Cool. Okay. So I don't have to set up my BVI and I don't have to have my Singapore Corp and my Hong Kong LLC quite yet. Good. (laughs) So so let's talk a little bit about housing, you know, website or online assets. You know, we have quite a few people listening to the show that may have, you know, a couple of websites, a couple of online businesses under their portfolio. What's the best way onshore in the U.S. to house those? An S Corp, a C Corp, an LLC? What's the benefit of each and like what should I be looking at?
0: Okay, well, I guess we'll start with the LLC. I mean, that's hands down the easiest. You know, if it's a single owner LLC, your filing requirements are extremely easy. You pretty much just file it on your personal income tax return and you're done. Income minus expenses equals profit. Pay tax on your profit. Now, the S corp, you could get a little bit of tax savings through if you're making enough money and you don't have to pay as much in what are called the payroll taxes, the Social Security taxes, the Medicare taxes. So how that works is it's a completely separate entity. It files a completely separate tax return. You have to pay yourself an actual payroll salary, which means quarterly payroll reporting. And whatever's earned past your normal salary is a profit distribution. And that profit is not subject to that Social Security and Medicare taxes. So you will save a little bit of money there, but you're required to pay yourself a, what they call a reasonable salary. So you can't just, you know, pay yourself $10,000 a year if you're
2: working 40 hours a week. That's a good question. Like reasonable salary. I've heard that before. So, you know, 50,000 a reasonable salary. If you're getting, you know, a hundred thousand dollar distribution, is it, do you balance the
0: two? How does that work? It's not a matter of do you balance, how much the profit is to what your salary is. It's more or less, what would it cost to replace you? From the business is the standard that of course the IRS says. Now that that's of course not an easy question to answer, but that is the standard. So you could look on monster.com and find somebody that could replace you for ten thousand dollars a year. There you go. You have a little bit of backup to say it only costs ten thousand dollars a year to replace you.
2: Okay, so if it's reasonable, so you know, let's say that I looked on Monster or whatever, and it's like it costs about sixty thousand dollars to replace myself, and I'm paying myself forty five, fifty. I'm in the ballpark. I'm close enough, right. and I get exactly. to I get to avoid avoid is probably not the right word. I know, but get to avoid social security tax and that kind of thing because I'm getting the right. K one at the end of the year and, and taking my profits out of the S corp.
0: Right. Okay. And then, of course, the final structure is the C corporation. Which generally is not recommended unless a lot of investors are involved. And here's why is the C corporation, it requires two levels of tax. So the corporation first gets taxed. And then when you pass the profits out to yourself, the shareholder, it gets taxed again as a dividend. So people say, well, why ever do this at all? Well, remember that the corporation pays its own tax. You know, the income doesn't pass through to the shareholders. So if you have multiple shareholders, 20, 30, 40 shareholders, and they keep coming and going, then you know, you're know you going to want to just have, all right, this entity will pay the tax, and then the shareholders don't want to deal with figuring out whose profit is whose, who owes tax on what profit, and it just turns into a nightmare when you have too many investors involved.
2: Okay, so it leaves it all up to the individual investors and the, the C-Corps like, look, you know, hands-free, we paid our tax. Now it's up to you guys. We're passing on to you. And the right. problem there is you're getting double tax, right?
0: Right. You're getting double tax, but it's easier in a sense where all they do is pay the tax on the actual dividends they received and not the net profit of the entity. The net profit of the entity's already been taxed.
2: What if my plan was to leave a lot of the cash in the C-Corp, right? And can't I, it's a piggy bank. Does it build up and then I can use that or leverage that in other ways?
0: Well, sure, it could build up, but again, it's already been taxed at generally, you know, again, generally the same rates as the individual rate. And can you use it for personal reasons? No. Can you use it for business reasons? Yes. Can you use it for the gray area, of personal and business reasons?
2: Maybe. Yeah, my, <laughs> my, my my special business dinner I had, my business Ferrari. No, that's not working. Yeah,
0: yeah, the business Ferrari. Yeah,
2: that's not that's not <laughs> cutting. Cut. But hey man, I gotta keep up with the Joneses. I gotta show off, you know, the Empire Flippers Ferrari. No, that's not, no, that's not cut. Put a big logo on the side. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> all right, man. So, <laughs> so that's not flying. But so, I want to keep the profits in the corporation, or if I'm saving up to then, like you know, do some explosive growth in the business. The C corp would work, but really, it's used for. There's multiple investors. It's a huge hassle to figure out how these hundred investors, people in, people out. How to pay them out and deal with that. So it's just like, hey, we paid our taxes now on you. Okay, I think
0: I got that. Really only used in those scenarios when there's too many investors involved.
2: So I get this question a bit too. And people are wondering look, you know, I have five online businesses, and they're arranging making anything from $2,000 a month in profit, and the biggest one makes $15,000 a month in profit. How do I decide whether to split those up into separate LLCs, separate S-corps, and like when do I do that, and why should I do that?
0: Well, separate S-corps to me would sound crazy for something only earning $2,000 a month because then you're filing five different full tax returns separate LLCs is not that bad because literally it's really just all flowing through to you anyway so you're only filing one thing. It's still of course five separate filing fees depending on what state you're in. I mean if you're in California that's 800 bucks a year minimum fee and you know multiply that times 5 that starts getting pricey. Yeah. To be honest, I mean the LLC thing is a legal thing. So it would only I guess make sense if you had one of your sites or one of your products where you think you have some sort of specific risk or liability, I would think would really make sense to split these up. You know, I think we made this one example, right? The kid licks the, you know, the paint on the toy. Yeah. You know, you're selling toys, selling toys to kids. Someone licks the paint and, you know, you got a big problem if, you know, little Joey dies.
2: Yeah. They swallow the little car and then all of a sudden they're not only suing that one asset, they can then go after all these different assets.
0: Right. Right. But, you know, if you're reviewing pens and pencils, and then getting referral traffic from your review site for pens and pencils, I think your risk is pretty low.
2: Cool. Okay, so I think I got it. We're either looking at an LLC or an S-Corp. The LLC would probably just be one that would house most of my assets, and the only time I would separate them out, as far as I can see it, is if there's some liability concern where one could be a problem for the other, that kind of thing. And most of the stuff...
0: I guess the only other thing that would make sense, again, from the tax side is if one really gets big enough and you're trying to market it to sell, then separation. Then, of course, if you take on a third-party partner with another, of course, you'd want to separate that from your own personal stuff.
2: Yeah, that makes sense. Another way you could do it is if you had them all under the same asset and you wanted to sell the LLC with the business, you probably wouldn't do. I mean, you could just sell those off to another LLC that you've created and do that, right? So you could sell all the assets except for one under that LLC to another LLC. And then sell that LLC to whoever. But we're going to get into why you probably aren't going to be doing that anyway. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about that. So due diligence. Let's talk about buying online businesses, selling online businesses. Stock versus asset sale. We never do stock sales. We haven't done one. They're always asset sales. Why is that? And who is that better for?
0: I mean, as the general rule, the asset sale is better for buyer. Because asset sale, you get the stepped up basis in the purchase of the assets. So that's typically the reason. And and the second is legal liability, I guess. You know, if you're only buying assets, you're not buying the former operations of the entity. So, you know, you're not buying the former liabilities that could have happened of the entity.
2: All right, Mario. So we've established that an asset sale is almost always, or we can even say always, better on the buy side. So is it necessarily true that a stock sale is what the seller should prefer? Is that always better for them?
0: Not always, you know, from the tax perspective, sometimes you could pretty much be in the same place depending on what the assets are that you're selling. You know, if, if all of the assets are pretty much web assets created yourself more or less, then you know, you don't have any depreciation recapture that you have to deal with, your full gain will be capital gain to you anyway. But if you've purchased these assets, have depreciated them, and have to deal with depreciation recapture, then you might have a partial ordinary income, partial capital gain. So really from the sell side, what you're looking at is the type of income you're picking up. Am I going to be picking up ordinary income or capital gain income? You know, the general rule is that capital gain income is at a lower rate, so I would prefer capital gain income. But, you know, if I have a partial ordinary income sale, you know, as long as it's not a lot, you know, you'd have to build that into your price.
2: Yeah, so what part of an asset sale is capital gains versus personal income? How is that determined?
0: So if you have created... For example, if you've created everything, you know, all created the, you know, bought the domain, created all the content, or of course your subcontractors created the content, whatever, then if you sell the assets, it's all going to be capital gain to you anyway because it's just, you know, that's what it is. It's just an intangible asset that you created. Most of your sales going to be Goodwill and, you know, your customer list, your email list. However, if you've purchased, you know, an existing site, say for $10,000 and you've depreciated, the site over the years, say so you've depreciated it $5,000 and then resold it for $20,000, that $5,000 of depreciation that you've taken, you've taken ordinary deductions for would get recaptured. So you'd have $5,000 of Ordinary income as part of your sale versus full capital gain.
2: Okay, so it comes down to depreciation of the asset. What happens if I bought it at $100,000 two years ago and ended up selling it at $80,000? What happens to that loss? How do I claim that as a seller?
0: So that would probably be a 1231 loss. So that would be ordinary loss to you because it's a business loss. And you'd be able to offset that against other income.
2: Great, okay. And that's on personal income, I'd get a twenty thousand dollar basically, you know, subtraction or deduction from my personal income for that year. Yes, for the most part. Great. Okay. I think I got that. Let's talk a little bit about accounting due diligence. Now I know how to check, you know, obviously financials for, you know, a website that I'm looking to buy, but in general, let's say for an offline business, like what are some quick checks a buyer can do to kind of see if the financials seem up to snuff to see make sure there's no monkey business going on there.
0: Right. So pretty much what you always request in due diligence on the, you know, the financial side is one is the financial statement. Second is your internal books. So your internal general ledger and trial balance, you know, balance sheet income statement. And then of course the tax return. And then you want to reconcile the three and say, what's the differences? You know, why is your tax income lower than your book income? And how can I get from your trial balance to your actual financial statement.
2: Isn't that often the case though? I've seen, you know, the tax returns and, you know, what they've got going on in the business. I mean, does that normally happen? <laughs> I normally haven't seen that, and it always seems to be a little off.
0: Yeah, I mean there's always going to be a little bit difference, but you know, you want to know what those reconciling items are. You know, you might have different depreciation methods for book purposes versus tax purposes.
2: That's actually an interesting way to see, like, okay, because, you know, say that, you know, there's a lot of business dinners going on. That's a way to kind of reconcile that and see kind of what extra income was going to them and how that worked.
0: Of course. And then there's the, they call the normalization process. So, you know, that's when, you know, the owner of the business is paying for his landscaping at his home and he's paying for his 12 kids' cell phone bills and... You know, everything and anything else under the sun that he's running through his business as a business expense. So we're adding that all back to say, well, this is what the true profit of the company is.
2: Yeah, it's tough. You know, as a seller, you need to get clear, you know, a year or two years before you're selling that business and not have a lot of that. Otherwise, you can end up in some kind of awkward due diligence situations where, yeah, no, you know, and, and sometimes sellers are trying to add that back. And the buyers aren't having that. They're like, you know, I don't know for sure that you didn't need that as part of your business expense. And now you're arguing over, you know, whether that was needed or not. And so if you can clean those out a year or two before you sell, you know, three years ago, your landscaping bill, you know, buyers, we can move past that. But in the last 12 months, it's a little more, there's a bigger question.
0: Right. Right. So really when you're, you know, on the seller side, you want it to be as clean as possible. So then it just makes the, You know, finding that true net income easier for the buyer.
2: Let me ask you this: on the buy side, are there? We talked about some red flags. I think that you know, matching up their tax returns and their business reports, and you know, everything like finding out what the discrepancies are, and you can look for some red flags there. I think. Matching up what they're claiming they made and they're showing for websites in particular, claiming, you know, they made all this money in AdSense or they made this money from Amazon or they made this money in product sales. And then matching that to their actual bank statements is helpful. You might, you want to see, make sure that the money coming in is actually coming in. The money going out is going out. I think that's helpful. Are there any signs of a winner for you where you're like, you know, I know you and attorneys get accused of being a, you know, deal busters. But are, are there? Which is true. Are there, that's what we pay to protect us from things, right? But like, are there any signs where you're like, "I like this." This is a very positive sign or trend.
0: It's more of the fit to the company that's doing the acquisition more than anything. You know, if you're buying in something that you already have expertise in, or if you're buying with something that you have a current customer list that can use this product or service, and it's worth much more to buyer who has this customer list than. You know, average Joe who doesn't. So it's more or less finding those synergies where you could make more money with the business than the former seller.
2: Is that something you're going to pay an accountant to look into for you? I Man, it seems kind of intuitive, or it seems more like the entrepreneur or the company is going to have a better grasp on what a good strategic, what the strategic value is. But how how can I get my accountant involved to actually? bust out the numbers and break them down and figure that out for me?
0: Well, because it's all based on some sort of like gross profit. So, you know, you have to make sure that the item that's being sold is profitable. So then it's saying, well, I have a customer list of, you know, million customers. And then if we add this new product line, and if we can sell it to 30% of our current customers, you know, how much more is this worth than to the general public? Because we have this customer list.
2: Yeah, and you can also start looking at is there any way for me to get my cost down? I've already got a large customer base, and so I plan on really ramping up this product. Let's say whatever kind of e-commerce product it is, and can I improve the margins on that? And yeah, they're making thirty percent margins. Can I get those to thirty-five or forty percent with my much larger orders and crush it selling to my current audience? Right. Right.
0: You also have to remember people hire lawyers and accountants for to specifically to say why should I not buy this. (laughs) That is why we are hired.
2: Yeah, I know. Deal busters.
0: Yeah, that's our job is to be either, well, deal busters or I'd like to say good negotiators.
2: Oh, okay. (laughs) No, it's totally true though. And it is true. And and what I've noticed is like, you know, a lot of times you have to weigh that. They don't have veto power. They give you great uh, counseling and then you decide (laughs) which way you're going to go, right? And that's, I think that's, there is value in that. So let's say we're still on the buy side, right? I'm a buyer, and I'm negotiating the purchase, right? And you're going to be my good negotiator, and you're going to help me negotiate this purchase. What kind of like concessions can be made in terms of like a tax aspect, in terms of a financial aspect that don't give up too much on my part, but may be really interesting to a seller?
0: What can you give up as a buyer on a tax aspect? And you could always flip-flop from asset to stock sale, which, depending on the situation, can help. I mean, other than that, on the tax side, it's really you know, not much that can be... I mean you could specifically identify prices of certain assets that are more favorable for buyer or seller.
2: Okay. Like what do you mean? So let's say I say the domain is worth more or less, how would that help or hurt the seller or buyer?
0: So again, that would depend on the situation. So if-
2: And by the way, let me be clear about what you mean by specify, you're saying like we actually break each aspect of the asset down. So we say the domain is worth this much, the email right. list is worth this much, the inventory is worth this much, right?
0: Right. So let's say that seller actually wanted to execute a like kind exchange for what he's selling. He's going to go and rebuy more assets that are similar in nature. So if you could match up values to what he needs to purchase whatever he's targeting, then you know you could be flexible with that and say, okay, we'll adjust our price for domain, we'll adjust our price for customer list, we'll adjust our price for content. Yeah. And then you know it will lower our price for goodwill. Because in the end, it really doesn't matter for us as you know, as buyer. But it matters to you as seller.
2: Okay, great. So I can, we can make those adjustments to those specifications, cuts the seller break, doesn't really matter to me. And that's a good concession you can make that doesn't give up much, but gives them some value. So you can start to right. then fight for points you think that are really important. And along those lines, like where should a buyer hold their ground? When a seller comes in and says, I want this, this, or this, where can you stand firm and say, nope, not doing that?
0: Obviously, price. Second would be, you know, financing options or, you know, holdbacks. Non-competes is another good one. You know, payment for non-competes because payment for non-competes to the seller is ordinary income versus, of course, what you want is capital gain. So if you lower your, quote, value of that non-compete, that's beneficial to the seller. Okay. So, I mean, there's just so many factors and it depends on the situation.
2: Yeah, so if I'm attaching an actual value to the non-compete, I can drop the value of that to cut the seller break because that's personal income right. for the seller. Okay.
0: Right. Cool. On every deal, all the assets should be identified and valued. There's a form required to be filed by both buyer and seller of any business. I think it's like an eighty-nine sixty something like that. And both should be filing that when they buy or sell a business, identifying each asset that's sold.
2: At what level do you think this actually comes into play? I mean, it generally doesn't for a $8,000 AdSense site, but it does in the mid-five, low-six figure?
0: Yeah, I mean, if you're selling something for 50000 and up, I, I think it's worth filing it for. Gotcha.
2: All right, let's switch over to the sell side a bit. Let's say, for example, Mario, that came to you. I said, look, I'm selling my business my finances are a mess, you're not going to like that, right? I mean, you'll like it, you're going to get paid, but (laughs) you're not going to like it in that it's messy and you're going to have to do a ton of digging through and figuring it out. Like, what can a seller do to kind of clean up their financials, make the financials easier for you to dig through in preparation for sale?
0: You're going to have to hire somebody. Because like you said, you need two full years at least of something clean. You know, you got to have a full bookkeeping system. You know, all of your stuff should be reconciling back to bank accounts and you should be able to easily prove that. And then, of course, reconcile your actual internal books to your tax return. I mean, most accountants do this for you annually anyway. Whether you know it or not, most of them are doing it.
2: So let me ask you this. A seller ever come to you and said, look, I want to sell my business. I want to start getting my finances cleaned up, whatever. And you're like, there's no way you can sell this business. You're going to have to wait until we can get past whatever. Is that, have you had that scenario?
0: I've never had that scenario because usually when people approach me, they're already my clients and most of my clients, most are pretty organized. So... You know, they have approached me and said, well, I'm thinking of selling in the next few years. What should I do to tighten up what I've got going on already? And, you know, and we do that. You know, we tell them, well, why don't you, you know, stop paying for, you know, the dog's insurance? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> totally makes you know, sense. Well, you know, and then I recommend, well, why don't you make sure that these monthly reconciliations are being done? How about we get a little more detail in your general ledger so people know what products and services are being sold so they can specifically identify what is and is not profitable and make sure this, you know, certain costs again are also specifically identified. And let's just get a little bit more detail. It's really it, on what they're doing. And you know, it might take a little bit more time every month, but just get it done. Yeah, so it makes sense to
2: me that you know if I came to Mario and said, look, you know, uh, two years from now, three years from now, I was looking to sell my business, having that kind of consultation so you can help me get prepared, make sure I'm you know assigning all of my expenses correctly and paying for the things right. I really need to in my business, it kind of makes sense in helping me get prepared for that. That's something we right.
0: I think again, you know, you are paying your dog insurance, at least specifically identify it in your chart of accounts, you know, so it's very clear. That these should be added back. If you refuse to stop deducting, you know your funny business expenses, then at least, at the very least, you know add something where it's very easily identifiable.
2: You don't want to be negotiating that at the closing table where they're trying to pay you a lot less for your business, and they're arguing it because of some vague reference you have in your books, right?
0: Right. Because usually, what people do is they try to bury this stuff. Well, you know, I'm going to bury that trip to Italy because, you know, why would I make it apparent to the government that I'm you know, trying to cheat the system.
2: Gotcha. So we often find the decision to sell is often an emotional one and everyone likes to think they're logical and rational, but it may be that they are getting married and so they're looking for the money, you know, to get married. And it's not, I mean, that's a rational decision, (laughs) kind of rational. No, it's a rational decision, (laughs) but, you know, like there's a lot of emotion involved and they're like, oh my God, am I going to get enough money to do this or, you know, buying my first home or whatever and I'm going to sell my business to get this home or whatever, do you being a third party or an accountant, you're a rational actor in this deal and you're a consultant to the seller, do you counsel them in terms of like whether it's a good time to sell if this is seems like a good market for their business or is that kind of like is that not something you get into?
0: Well, what I usually get into is sell versus keep. You know, it's, well, this is what happened if you keep your business, you know, let's say assume the same cash flows for the next five or some odd years and this is what will happen if you sell it. Net after tax, because a lot of times what they want to know is if I sell my business, how much am I really going to have in my pocket yeah. after tax? And then I say, this is how much you're going to have in your pocket every year for five years. If you keep your business and a lot of times that is what, you know, dictates their price. Cause like you said, it's an emotional thing. It's, well, if I'm going to sell this, if I'm going to sell my baby, you know, and I'm going to lose my, you know, this income that I'm earning, then this is the price I would need after tax.
2: Yeah, I mean, they might have that number in their head. You know, everyone's got that number. Exactly. Can I get this or am I paying taxes? And then you start realizing what you're really going to get after fees, after taxes, after everything. You're like, oh, not quite there yet, right? Right.
0: So, you know, a lot of times it turns into saying, well, that's not enough after taxes. And they say, you know what, now's not a good time to sell. And other times they say, I'm just done. I'm just finished with it. I'll take anything. I just yeah. don't want to deal with, I don't want to deal with this business anymore. Yeah, cuz you're just done. Then I try to make sure that they wait for what it's truly worth. Gotcha. So then
2: it's more of about like okay, let's see how we can still maximize value. You know, keep your cards close and (laughs) let's let's get through this. Yeah, that's really interesting. So you mentioned the thing that the idea that, you know, how much cash in the bank would you have after five years? And so this is kind of awkward, right? So if you're in a growing business and let's say you've had year over year growth for the last three or four years, and you start thinking, you start playing that out and you look at where you're gonna be in five years in terms of cash, assuming everything continues. If that were just the case on the question of cash, like I think most people would not sell their businesses at all. Right. Yeah. Usually don't factor in any growth when we do that calculation. OK. Even breaking even. But still, I mean, yeah. you know, unless you're in part of some crazy startup or you're getting some crazy strategic valuation, I mean, getting five years cash for your business is not common, at least in the online world. I don't think right. many offline businesses in the six, seven figures are getting that either. Right. Yeah, that's a rough one.
0: Yeah. No, there's a lot of times where they say, well, that's just not enough. But a lot of times that just means that they're really not ready to sell. Yeah, and then they would be wasting everybody's time when it comes down to signing the paperwork. Because in the end, that's when they'll think about it. You want to tell them upfront before they start shopping it, and then wasting everybody's time, and then ultimately not selling it.
2: Yeah, and it it takes a lot to sell, especially the bigger the business. They're just so much more involved, and it almost becomes you know your full time job if you're trying to sell your business and shop it around. It can be, you know, it can be quite stressful. And so in some situations, especially if it's like a long drawn out sales process, your business can suffer. And so I think that's something you have to consider too. How much of my business suffer if it takes 18 months for me to sell this, you know, $3 million business.
0: Right. And a lot of times, again, it all goes back to emotions. It's what are you going to do once it's sold? You know, some people are like, well, you know, this is my baby. I want to still want to come in here. So, you know, it's tough for some people.
2: Let's talk a little bit about deal structures as opposed to just straight buying or selling for cash. So are there ways to structure a business for a seller that are advantageous? So if they were getting paid for their training as opposed to the asset, I think training is personal income versus capital gains. Is that right?
0: You're right. Exactly. Training will be purely personal income. The one benefit of it though is you know you could kind of play with the tax years it gets captured. So it's you know, okay, you're on as a consultant for a year or two years. You know, you sell in November for a million bucks. So you're in a huge high income tax bracket. But your payments on your consulting doesn't start until January. And now you have low income. So although it's ordinary income, you're still not at too high of a tax rate. And it's kind of a win for everybody.
2: Okay. And you can move the dates around to be, you know, advantageous on the sell right, side.
0: Right. So you can play with dates, which helps sometimes. Other times, you know, sometimes it doesn't if you have other sources of income.
2: Is there any difference? Let's say that I'm selling a business for $1.2 million and I'm doing, you know, $600,000 earn out, right? Is there any difference on whether it's tied to the success of the business versus just a straight loan? Is that you know, taxed in any different way? Is there any strategic advantage there?
0: I mean, it's so dependent on what the earn out is. You know, it would depend on if you actually... Constructively received it, is pretty much what the IRS standards are, more or less. Where it's like, what are the odds that you even receive that extra six hundred thousand dollars? So it might not be income until you actually receive it. But if the restrictions aren't that difficult, it might be income the day you sell it.
2: Okay, so that
0: gets confusing.
2: <laughs> I'm a little
0: confused. That's not surprising. <laughs> that gets confusing. So, it, like I said, it depends on the restrictions of the earnout payment. So if the earnout payment is very very likely. Then it's possible you actually have to include that earnout in your, you know, the gain that you're recognizing in the year you sell.
2: Okay, so let's say that I've got a lien. It's a flat payment. They have to make these payments. It's very likely they will because I they're personally liable for those payments, or something. It's much more likely than right. I have to claim it. If it's tied to some kind of profit or some kind of goalposts that the business right. has to hit, that's not a guarantee.
0: Right, right. And then you could always play probably installment sale on it as well. Depending on how it's set up. So where you do partial income, part gain in, or part gain, part return, I guess, of what your basis is in the year you sell it in the years you collect. So that one gets tricky.
2: All right, man, let's move on. I'm not, I'm still not sure I totally understand that, but, uh, <laughs> I'm gonna get some other questions. Let's, let's talk about just tax in general, buying and selling websites in particular. If I've never owned a website before, and I'm buying one for the first time, how should I account for it on my taxes? Like, how does that work? It's an account for always
0: ordinary income.
2: I'm sorry, not if I'm buying it, how do I account for it? Like, what is that? Do I get to write
0: it off? Right. So if you buy, you know, a, an asset, which is, you know, to full more or less it's a business, you're buying not just a domain name. You're buying a domain. You're buying content that's on, you know, the site you're buying probably an email list of customers and the goodwill. Now, All of those assets for the most part are what are considered section 197 intangible assets. Those assets, when you buy them, should be depreciated over 15 years. You can't immediately deduct that purchase.
2: How can I shorten that depreciation time?
0: Not easy. There's not (laughs) a lot. Yeah. There's not a lot written in any guidance on purchase of web assets. There's some stuff out there where if you're purchasing like sales copy that could possibly be immediately deductible?
2: That might be a stretch. Like, you know, there is some sales copy on the site and it definitely does its job. It's been split tested, but how much value of the asset is really in that sales copy? That's, yeah.
0: And then the second thing is that a domain, so generally if you buy a domain, not as part of a purchase of an entire site, if I buy a domain that I'm going to start, you know, it's it's three-year depreciable property for the most part. But because it's purchased along with the you know, assets of the business, it's typically 15-year property. But if you can somehow separate out the part that is the goodwill portion of that domain versus the actual value of the domain, you might be able to pull off a three-year period on that domain. So I guess here's a good No, idea. no, no.
2: I think I got it, Mario. Let me see if I'll give you a scenario. You tell me if I'm right. So I'm buying a business. I'm paying $1.2 million for it. But there's a ton of value in the brand, and associated with the brand are a bunch of other domains that are included in the sale. And if we can tie the brand value to those domains, not the whole thing, but a portion of that, then I can depreciate that over three years.
0: Not exactly, because most of that sounds like it would be goodwill because they're tied to each other. Mm. So here's the the example, more or less, is if I'm buying a site called drugs.com, that has inherent value because... If you were just buying and selling domain names, drugs.com would be a great domain name, right? Yeah. But for example, google.com is worth nothing except for the value, the actual goodwill value that Google has, you know, built up.
2: Oh my god, that's crazy talk, man. I yeah, know I hear you. Yeah. I hear you cuz Google made I mean? the brand. Yeah, like Amazon. It it like there's no Amazon, that's nothing, right? But drugs is a exactly. commonly used word and you could argue exactly. that
0: Oh, that okay. has inherent that has inherent value, and again, this is all super gray area. <laughs> and, and there's nothing written in guidance. This is all, you know. I had to do one research one times for a, a big purchase, and I said these are options. They're not good ones, but there's <laughs> at least there's some people talking about it.
2: Someone could kind of argue that possibly, right? Maybe you
0: ar- exactly. You could argue that that domain has inherent value outside of its brand.
2: So basically, if we're, let's say we were talking about doing some deal like this and you're like, dude, it's gray area, it's kind of sketch, it'd probably be a good idea to bring the lawyer in that I would have to fight or defend for it and say, hey man, can you help me with this? Is this something you think that that would hold, right? And you guys can kind of help yeah. us figure it out.
0: And then you have to value each and then who's going to give you a valuation? I mean, depending on the dollar amounts, you would actually want to get a valuation opinion on what the value of the inherent value of the domain is versus the goodwill value of the domain. So, I mean, you're talking to, you know, a lot of money involved to do to just to get accelerated depreciation. Now, another option is doing like kind exchanges. And I, I think I talked about this on the last show and I wasn't sure, but I did actually talk with a like kind expert. I think just yesterday or the day before. So what you can do is if you're selling your site, you can actually, you know, just go and repurchase another site and not capture any, well, not any gain. You can not capture some of the gain on the sale. So if you were to buy, you know, a site that has similar things to it, so a similar, you know, it has a domain, not a similar domain, but just a domain, it has content and it has a customer list, you know, an email list, then those are similar assets. And you could defer the gain on that sale. That sounds so
2: gray because I mean all in terms of like gray area because I mean all online businesses are kind of the same they all have that I mean, you could argue that does it have to be an e commerce to e commerce sale or could it be e commerce to lead gen as long as they're both making money online have a customer
0: list I guess the only difference would be that the inventory would not be like kind so yeah you could always exchange like kind assets for like kind assets so like you said.
2: Yeah. Okay. If so,
0: you're specifically identifying the dollar amounts in your buy and your sell and then you defer the portion of those gains, you're still gonna have gain on your goodwill, but you won't have gain on you know the sale of the other of your line customer items. List. Okay. Right. So you sell your customer list for twenty thousand and then you buy a new customer list for twenty thousand, then even if you know you have zero basis in your first customer list, you're not gonna have to recognize that twenty thousand dollar gain.
2: Gotcha. Okay. Now you'll have to recognize or you have to Pay the piper on the goodwill, but now that right. you've you know made line items or itemized each of the deals in this business, at least a portion of the business that's not goodwill, you know, as long as you've rolled it into something else that's like kind, you're not right. going to have to pay tax on that. Right, that's sneaky. I like that.
0: Which I thought was very very interesting. Now, of course, there's a ton of other rules around it. You know, you can't be flipping sites, you know, every three months.
2: Oh, don't tell me that, that was- Mario. Don't tell that now. Now. You were good, man. We were good. And now you're going there. You can't be so... So every three months would be too much. I mean, what if you did it every six months,
0: every nine months, like where multiple times in a year wouldn't work? The general rule, well, if you have multiple sites, then maybe. But the problem with doing this with multiple sites is actually the sale of your sites. They might consider that to be inventory to whoever's you know buying and selling sites. So you don't want to be in the business of buying and selling sites. You want to be in the business of running these sites.
2: Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, I know there are some people out there that have large inventories of sites. I'd say hundreds of profitable sites and that's it is kind of like inventory for them. Now why is inventory a problem? Or why is having you know say five hundred sites and you're constantly buying and selling them, why is that necessarily a problem?
0: Because they you want to be seen as this site being an investment instead of like a cost of goods sold asset. You know what I mean? So, for example, if I'm in the business of buying and selling chairs, every time I buy and sell a chair, I have ordinary income. Mm. That's not an investment to me. That's just me buying inventory and reselling it, right?
2: Yeah. So if you're just pumping them out, yeah.
0: Exactly. I'm in the business of buying and selling chairs. Now, if I were instead in the business of managing a chair company that buys and sells chairs, and then I've built up a customer list where my chair company, And now, you know, a year later, two years later, I sell all my customers. I sell, you know, all the significant assets that, you know, sell this chair business. Then I'm selling a business. You know, I'm selling in like a, my investment.
2: How would that be determined? I mean, if you have 10 businesses, if you have 15 businesses, like where's the line there?
0: Yeah, there is none.
2: Everyone laughs at me when I say, like, we're in the Wild West here with this, like, buying and selling of online businesses. And then I talk to guys like you, you're like, yeah, yeah, you're in the Wild West, man.
0: Yeah. There is no bright line test. I mean, it's kind of like, I liken it a lot to real estate. You know, if you own a whole bunch of rental properties, you're fine. But if you're a builder and you actually are buying a rental property, fixing it, and then reselling it, you know, you're actually a, you know, that's what you're in business of doing. And if you keep doing that again and again and again, then the sale of those houses are not capital gain. That's ordinary income.
2: Gotcha. Okay, so what's interesting about this, I think thing I'm going to take from this is if you're selling your site and you're buying another and you have it line itemed out to where the goodwill you're going to pay on, but the rest you're not. And so the more you can get in the rest, the better, as long as it's right. a like kind. So that's
0: valuable. Talk to your advisor. It could be It's something that could be worthwhile depending on the dollar amounts. I mean, there's a lot of stuff has to happen. Money has to get held in escrow by certain certified escrow agents. I mean a lot of stuff has to actually happen correctly to accomplish it. Yeah, to claim that. Okay. Right. But it could be very advantageous if you're, you know, if you're deferring a gain of a million bucks, you know.
2: But you have to buy same year, same calendar year.
0: There's certain guidelines of how long it is. Honestly, I don't remember how long the time. You have to specifically identify, I think I want to say like 6 months. So identify a few different purchases and then close a few months after that. I, I honestly don't remember the timelines.
2: No worries, Mario. Well, I've taken up a bit of your time here, Matt. This has been <laughs> super helpful. And you don't mind my digging questions or my maybe maybe uh, curious questions because all this stuff is really interesting to me. I'm sure our listeners are fascinated as well. And by the way, you know I've loved working with you. If anyone's looking to work with you, potentially, where can they get a hold of you, Matt?
0: They can always get me by email. It's mario at greenhouserearden.com. That's a lot to spell. I'll probably just post it in like show notes or something.
2: Yeah, buddy. I'll put it in the show notes. Uh, I'll <laughs> link to your site. I'll put a link to our other interview that we did over on the Empire Flippers podcast as well. if People want to hear more from you, buddy. But, you know, thanks so much for coming on. I think Ace is going to get a ton of value out of this. I'm going to tell him he needs to start working with you, man. You guys can do some good business together, I'm sure.
0: I know. Tell him to call
2: me. I'll do that, man. All right. Thanks. Thanks for coming on.
0: No problem time. Thanks for listening to the Web Equity Show. Now is your chance to be a part of the action. Go to www.webequityshow.com gift and send us your business acquisition or exit question and have it answered on the show.